You guys ever seen a miracle? A true miracle? Well, there was this devout old shepherd, and he lost his favorite Bible. You know, sometimes you just get a Bible that's just means a lot to you. You know, this is my favorite Bible. It looks like I killed a dragon for it. Uh, yeah, or skinned a snake or something, right? I love that Bible. Well, this old shepherd, he lost his favorite Bible when he was out looking for a wayward lamb. And three weeks later, the shepherd, uh, the sheep, a sheep, walked up to him carrying the Bible in his mouth. And the shepherd couldn't believe his eyes. He took the precious book out of the sheep's mouth. He raised his eyes heavenward and exclaimed, it's a miracle. And the sheep said, no, not really. Your name was written on the inside cover. Ha, 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 ha. Okay, well. What? <laughs> I know, I need somebody with the, the drum thing. Well done. Oh, you were ready for me. Okay. Awesome. Father, I thank you that I'm allowed to be cheesy and that you use simple things to confound the wise, that you bring um, grace and love to those who do not deserve it. And Lord, we are a bunch of misfits and broken people, and we desperately need your love and your grace. And I pray that we would understand today what it means that you are the one shepherd. Help us to know what our souls need to breathe and to feed on today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. And I pray that that guy is safe on his motorcycle. <laughs> the book of Ecclesiastes is like an interrogation of life, okay? So Solomon, he's done his best to look at every issue that people go through, and his perspective has been consistent. Like the video said, it was always under the sun, that's where he's looking for his answers. He's never, he's not including God in trying to find the answers of why things go wrong or bad here in this life. There's lots of problems, and as Solomon says, there's not many solutions when God is not in your equations. So unless we look above the sun for our answers, it's really all going to be in vain, but Solomon didn't have that perspective. Solomon gives us good and, and thorough interrogations of all that is wrong and broken in life. And that's, that's important for us. And that's why Ecclesiastes is so good to study because there are many reasons to despair. There's many reasons why life stinks, why life is difficult. But Jesus, when we add him to the equation, Jesus gives us hope. Not always all the answers that you may want or need, but he gives us something better, hope. So let's look at the final two chapters of the book of Ecclesiastes and find that hope, okay? And so the first thing we're going to see in chapter 11 is the value of diligence, that um, it's good to work hard. But he's going, to find, uh, he's going to tell us that even if we work hard, it's not really going to matter in the end. Working for profit that can't immediately be seen is kind of the lesson that he's saying here. So he says here, starting in verse 1 of chapter 11, cast your bread upon the waters, for you will find it after many days. 
Here Solomon says, it's good to invest. You should invest. Invest wisely. What he's talking about, casting your bread upon the waters, is referring to an old shipping venture. When you would uh, you know, ship, you'd buy something, you'd invest in what a ship is carrying to another land, they would take it to this other land, then they would sell it and return back with a profit, and you would get a portion of that profit. Solomon says that is a good thing to do. And you know what? Jesus agrees that investing is good. In fact, he gives us several parables, and he says your life is like an investment. You get a certain amount of days. You have a certain amount of opportunities in this life. And Jesus tells us that we should be wise about our opportunities and use them for the Lord. But how many days do we waste on our own ventures? You know, we do. We, we spend times on ourselves thinking about our own kingdom instead of God's kingdom. God says if we would invest, Jesus says if we would invest in his kingdom, and I am not talking about money, I'm talking about opportunities. Your opportunities are so much more valuable than your money. How many times do you say, I wish I just had a chance? Well, right now, today, you have a chance. You have a chance to live for God. You have a chance to pray and ask for his help and abide with him. You have a chance today. You have an opportunity today, but you don't know how many opportunities you have left. You don't know how many days you have left. I mean, echo variant could be killing us all next week. Who knows, right? We have no idea when we're going to die. But today, we're alive, and we have this chance to seek the Lord and to work for his kingdom, serving him. Good stuff. Okay. Then he says, Give a serving to seven and also to eight, for you do not know what evil will be on the earth. Here Solomon is saying generosity is good. And Jesus agrees. Generosity is very good. He says, you know, there's, Jesus says, he loves a cheerful giver. Do you guys know there's not a requirement to tithe in the New Testament of the Bible? God does not ask you to tithe in the New Testament. And do you know that I have, we have never asked anyone for money at our church through eight years that we've been here? We have never asked. And I've been full-time. God has provided for uh, my family and for our church for eight years, hallelujah, praise God, and we have never asked people once, we've never passed a thing and said, you should give money. But one thing we do, we want to tell you all how generous Jesus has been to you, how much he loves you, and then please do whatever you want. Just do whatever you want. If his generosity stirs in you a response of also generosity, that you want to be like your Savior, then by all means, give to his work that he is doing in the world. But generosity is good, and that's what Solomon says here. If the clouds are full of rain, they empty themselves upon the earth. And if a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where the tree falls, it shall lie. He who observes the wind will not sow. He who regards the clouds will not reap. What Solomon is talking about here is kind of this cause and effect that is true and that you can observe in the world, that things happen and they affect other things, but you can't really know 
everything, and there is a limit to analysis. There is a limit to data. You can try to figure out why trees fall or why the wind blows, but it's really never going to help you very much. It's never going to get you very far. He goes on, he says, as you do not know what is the way of the wind or how bones grow in the womb of her who is with child, so you don't know the works of God who makes everything. Again, he's saying simply, you don't know everything. God knows, but there's a limit to what we can know as human beings. Then he says, in the morning, sow your seed, and in the evening, do not withhold your hand, for you do not know which will prosper, either this or that, or whether both alike will be good. So here, he's talking about, you know, when, when to work. Should I work the morning shift or the evening shift? And back in that day, you would work really hard in the morning because it was cool. You would take a break in the afternoon because it was hot, and then you'd work a bit more in the, in the evening because it was cool. And uh, he says, that's good. You should just go ahead and work whenever it's time to work. You should have a job, and you should work when it's time to work. Um, But know that sowing seed is more about trust than it is about certainty. You don't know that when you work that it's going to be good for you. There may come disaster. There may come, it might not, as a farmer, your plants might all die because of a drought or something like that. He says it's more about trusting God than it is about knowing certainly that if you work really hard, it's all going to be good. But actually, he says, just work hard when you're supposed to work, and then it's out of your hands and trust God. Okay? So what this does is this help us to understand that your life is more about trusting God than it is about what you're actually doing. Does that make sense? So, and obviously you don't want to be doing bad. He says, work when you work. Don't be lazy. Work when it's time to work. But always know that it's about a relationship with God and handling things with that trust as opposed to freaking out and saying, well, I worked really hard. This shouldn't have happened because I did the right thing. That's not an attitude of faith. That's an attitude of self-centered trust, trusting in self instead of trusting in uh, God's control. All right, he goes on. He says, truly, the light is sweet, and it is pleasant for the eyes to behold the sun. If a man lives many years and rejoices in them all, yet yet let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. All that is coming is vanity. So Solomon's like, finally, I just got to confess that I'm back to the beginning. All is vanity. So now we're going to get into Solomon's conclusion of his book. He says, seek, he's going to tell us to seek God when you're young, because when you're old, you're probably going to get set in your ways. And it's going to be harder for you to actually find God when you're older, because you're going to be distracted by so many things. So he says in verse 9, Rejoice, O young man, in your youth, and let your heart cheer you in the days of your youth. Walk in the ways of your heart and in the sight of your eyes, but know that for all these God will bring you into judgment. So I feel, I feel like Solomon is kind of like, at the very end here, he's kind of saying, you know what, maybe this whole under the premise, under the sun premise thing is wrong. Maybe my whole book, I've been missing something. I feel like Solomon is on the right track there. He's like, man, 
maybe we should just do whatever we want. Maybe, maybe God is watching us. And that's kind of been his premise is that everything is outside of his control. Therefore, remove sorrow from your hearts and put away evil from your flesh for childhood and youth are vanity. So Solomon, he's like all over the place. Maybe it's really not about having fun or finding pleasure under the sun. It seems like Solomon is more confused at the end of his book than when he started. And that's kind of what it, we're going to find, is that all this, all this trying to figure stuff out kind of drives us mad. So we, he goes on and he says, Remember now your creator in the days of your youth, before the difficult days come and the years draw near when you say, I have no pleasure in them. So Solomon finds this one little bit of truth here where he says, a childlike faith is the best way to live. A childlike faith is the best way to live. And you know what? Jesus agrees with that. He agrees. So we're going to scoop, uh, we're going to zoom over to Matthew chapter 18 just to see how Jesus would say that. He says, then Jesus called a little child to him, set him in the midst of him and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become like little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Now I get why people don't like Jesus. Now I get it. Jesus threatens our self-pride. Jesus says it cannot live. If your pride lives, you cannot live in the kingdom of God. And that is just so consistent with Jesus. Pride will not stand before him. He says you must become like a little child. What does he mean by that? Little children are not worried about where their food is going to come from the next day. They just trust in their father. Little children, when they get hurt, where do they run to? Yeah, they run to their father. Little children care more about their relationship with their father than whatever else they got going on in the world. The dad comes home from work. The kid could be playing the greatest game of Lego hide-and-seek Fortnite. <laughs> Jinx, you owe me a Coke. Um, he, they could be doing anything, but when dad comes in, there's that age where the kid just stops whatever they're doing and runs up to their dad because their relationship with dad means so much to them. And that's what Jesus is saying here. Your heavenly father loves you. And that's what humility looks like. It's all about him, not about me, not about what games I got going on, but what a relationship with God is, is all that we need. All right, so now we go back to Ecclesiastes. We pick it up where Solomon is writing a poem now about growing old, a growing old poem. Every time I think of growing old, I think of my two favorite old geezers, those guys from, uh, what are their names, John? Yeah, the two old guys from the Muppets who sit up in the thing and are mean to people. I want to be like that when I'm old. 
I hope I have a buddy who can be old and angry with me. Okay. Yes, BK or Nathan. <laughs> All right, so let's read this poem that he, it's actually a pretty cool poem. He does a pretty good job, even though it's written in another language and translated for us. While the sun and the light, the moon and the stars are not darkened, and the clouds do not return after the rain, in the day when the keepers of the house tremble and the strong men bow down, when the grinders cease because they are few, and those that look through the windows grow dim, when the doors are shut in the streets and the sound of grinding is low, when one rises up at the sound of a bird and all the daughters of music are brought low. Also, they are afraid of height and of terrors in the way. When the almond tree blossoms and the grasshopper is a burden and desire fails, for man goes to his eternal home and the mourners go about in the streets. So like I said, that was a poem about growing old. There was that one really interesting part where it says, and desire fails. In Hebrew, those are the words, that, that part is, the words are caper berries fail, which I think was just Viagra. So I think that's what that means. So anyway, I thought that would point that out. That was interesting as I was studying. Um, so now he gets to a final plea. Remember God before you go to life beyond the sun. So that's what we're going to see here. He says, remember your creator before the silver cord is loosed or the golden bowl is broken or the pitcher shattered at the fountain or the wheel broken at the well. Then the dust will return to the earth as it was and the spirit will return to God, his, uh, God who gave it. So then he concludes with his final conclusion, vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. And again, that word vanity means, man, this is difficult. Life is hard. Life is unknowable. Life is cursed. And it's almost like Solomon is saying, I wish I knew someone who could help me more. I'm literally the smartest guy who's ever lived, and I can't figure life out. How could this be? I wish there was someone who could help me more. Well, like the video said, there's someone that put an ending on this book, wrote a conclusion to Solomon, a response to what Solomon said here, that, man, life is just really difficult, and I think it has something to do at the end with remembering God, your creator, and having some sort of relationship with God. But Solomon, man, was really, he was really kind of confused on what that looked like. But this person who gives us the ending of the book, he gives us something more to kind of hang on to and grasp onto. He says in verse 9, And moreover, because the preacher was wise, he still taught the people knowledge. Yes, he pondered and sought out and set in order many proverbs. So he's complimentary towards Solomon. He says, Solomon was really smart. I'm glad he wrote this book. The preacher sought to find acceptable words, and what was written was upright words of truth. Then he says this, the words of the wise are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? Nope, not. It's, uh, if you if you're, uh, had your horses or your cows, uh, you know, uh, plowing a field, you would have these little spikes that would be kind of by their bottom. And if they started to go to the right or to the left, 
they would dig themselves into those spikes, and those spikes were called goads. And so it would keep them going straight. So that's what goads are. Um, the words of the upright, the words of the wise, he says, are like goads. And the words of scholars are like well-driven nails given by one shepherd. So here, this guy writing, whoever wrote the conclusion in this book, he references and brings another character to us, the one shepherd. And he says, there's this one shepherd who can give us goads and wise words that, that Solomon was trying to give us. Solomon tried. He, he tried his best. And Solomon's words were like goads and well-driven nails. They were like goads that were pushing us in the right direction. In the New Testament, the right direction is called the way. Who said, I am the way? Yeah, yeah, he did. Uh, Solomon's words are like nails, well-driven nails that secure us to the truth. Who said in the New Testament, I am the truth? Jesus. And who do you think is that one shepherd? Jesus. Every answer in church is always Jesus. There you go. So to find the, the real truth and the real direction or way that we need, we need a shepherd to give that to us. We need him to help us. And the shepherd is none other than Jesus. God cares about us finding the truth and the direction that we should have in this life that we are seeking. You need truth? God cares about giving you truth. You need a direction? He cares about where you should be going by the way, I shouted at a shepherd the other day. He said, you what? I said, you heard. <laughs> I love that one. All right. We're going we're gonna to deviate away from Ecclesiastes for a minute, talking about shepherds and seeing God's heart about shepherds. So we go over to the book of Ezekiel, and he says in Ezekiel chapter 34, and the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, prophesy against the shepherds of Israel, prophesy and say to them, thus says the Lord God to the shepherds, woe to the shepherds of Israel who feed themselves. Should not the shepherds feed the flocks? So this whole chapter, God basically goes into tremendous detail to describe all the ways that the leaders and the pastors of Israel were selfish and didn't care about the people. He goes on, verse 11 and 12, he says, For thus says the Lord God, Indeed, I myself will search for my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock on the day that he is among his scattered sheep, so I will seek out my sheep and deliver them from all the places where they were scattered on a cloudy and dark day. Now, verse 15, I will feed my flock and I will make them to lie down, says the Lord God. I will seek that was, what was lost and bring back what was driven away, bind up the broken, strengthen what was sick, but I will destroy the fat and the strong and feed them in judgment. So what is going on here? God is saying, I'm sick of bad shepherds. And so I am going to take responsibility to be the shepherd myself. He wants to shepherd his people. And he describes what kind of shepherd he would be. 
he would be the kind of shepherd that cares about his flock, that provides for them, that heals them, that cares for them, uh, strengthens those that are sick. That's the kind of shepherd that God would be, almost like you could call him a good shepherd. You ever heard that before? Yeah. Uh, Let's look at verse 23. I will establish one shepherd. There's those two words again. The same words that Ecclesiastes used to, used to describe Jesus who would be coming. Uh, Ezekiel says the same thing. I will establish one shepherd over them. He will feed them. My servant, David. He shall feed them and be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God. And my servant, David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken. So he's talking about David, right? But this isn't the David from the past. That David's already dead. So this is a different David. This is the son of David. This is the one who was promised to David. And that is also Jesus. He was a descendant directly from David. And that was foretold and prophesied to David that one of his sons down his genealogy, would be the savior of the world, would be this one perfect shepherd, would be the Messiah, the one that would save all the people of the world from their sins. God says he will be the good shepherd. Well, what does Jesus say about this? So we fast forward to John chapter 10, and we read this about Jesus, 1 through 18. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who does not enter the sheepfold by the door, but climbs in some other way, the same as a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is the shepherd of the sheep. To him, the doorkeeper opens and the sheep hear his voice and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. And when he brings out his own sheep, he goes before them. And the sheep will follow him, for they know his voice. Yet they will by no means follow a stranger, but they will flee from him, for they do not know the voice of strangers. Jesus used this illustration, but they did not understand the things which he spoke to them. Then Jesus said to them again, most assuredly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. Whoever enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. So not only be saved, but their life will find what it, what it means. The thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy, but I have come that they may have life. And that they may have it more abundantly. I am the good shepherd. There Jesus just says it. Right out and flat in the open for us to see. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. But a hireling, he who is not the shepherd, one who does not own the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf catches the sheep and scatters them. The hireling flees because he is a hireling 
and does not care about the sheep. But Jesus says, I am the good shepherd, and I know my sheep, and I am known by my own. As the Father knows me, even so I know the Father, and I lay my life down for the sheep. uh, There are other sheep that I have which are not of this fold. That means Gentiles, not just Jews, were going to get saved. Them I also must bring, and they will hear my voice, and there will be one flock and one shepherd. And I'm so grateful for that because I'm a Gentile. Therefore, my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. What this all means is that the good shepherd is all about self-sacrifice for his sheep. He lays no burdens on you. He doesn't care how weak you are. He doesn't care how dumb you are. He does not care how much you have failed. He only knows that he loves you. He cherishes you. He wants every moment of your life to be with him under his protection. Know that you are his treasure. He sacrificed himself for you. He is a good shepherd that is always giving what the sheep need. He doesn't care what he needs. He's not, he's not oh, I need, I need a bunch of good people to go out there and change the world. I need people who are really committed. Actually, Jesus says, I just love you. If I need anything, I just need you to trust me and stay with me. Abide with me. Silly sheep. And have you guys seen that viral video that's been out there of the sheep that got stuck down in the ditch and they pull him out and he runs away and dives right back in the ditch again? And it's like the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. And that is perfect description of us. We are so dumb as sheep. Sheep are dumb, but we as his followers are just super dumb. We, we get rescued by him, and then we run like, ah, oh, what's going on in my life? And we just dive right back in the same pit that we were in before. But Jesus is always concerned about giving what they need, giving what we need, protecting his sheep from any harm protecting his sheep to his own harm. He will put himself between his sheep and the wolf. And that's exactly what he did when he climbed up on the cross and he allowed himself to be nailed to the cross. He was getting between you and the lion, between you and death. He got up there. And he did it before you even asked him. Before you even knew that you needed him, he was already thinking about you and what you would need. He does this for us. Jesus is the perfect shepherd. Jesus is the one shepherd. And that's what Solomon needed. 
Solomon couldn't see it, Solomon ended up being quite a goober toward the end of his life. He got married to over like 700 women and 300 concubines. And yeah, he, he got into so many things, worshiped idols, and he just really fell. This is, Solomon needed that one shepherd. He needed to know God's love, but he kind of didn't get it. We also need, this is the one shepherd that we need. We need Jesus as our one true shepherd if we are ever going to get through this life under the sun. Or we're probably going to fall to various things as well. We're not going to make it without our shepherd. How many sheep are out there tearing it up in the wild? Like Lambo. How many sheep do great against the bears and the wolves in the wild? No, we, we can't do it. We will fall. We need a shepherd. It's vanity without him. Our lives are vanity without Jesus. Back in Ecclesiastes. And further, my son, be, adm- be admonished by these, these words of the one true shepherd. Of making many books, there is no end. Of much study, and much study is wearisome to the flesh. Solomon knew it all, and it took its toll on him. Jesus is there when we are ready to stop trying to figure it out. And we're ready for rest. The gift of peace. When we are finally done running and we're ready to say, you know what, fine, God, I give up. I'm going to stop running. You have been following me like a little cat my whole life, and it feels like you're right there and you just are at my heels and you're never going to let me go. I'm done. I give up. Jesus says, it's about time. All I've wanted from you is nothing but to give you peace, to give you rest, to take the burdens off your shoulders and to tell you that I love you and you are my beloved child. That is what Jesus does for us. That is how he transforms everything from vanity to glory. Vanity means like vapor. You try to grab it and it's nothing. It's like cotton candy. You eat it and it's like it was never there. Where glory is like a steak that you eat it and it satisfies you and you become stronger because of it. Obviously, I'm not a vegetarian. God bless you if you are. It's not like our lives were never intended to be chasing after smoke chasing after the wind. Our lives were intended to matter and to be full of glory, and that's what Jesus gives. The book ends like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. A relationship with God is really the only thing that will ever really matter, he says. Whoever finished this book says, make God number one in your life. 
Follow his word, he says, his commandments. What's another name for Jesus in John chapter 1? The word of God. Follow Jesus. Jesus is the word. So become a Jesus follower from the heart. Not faking it. Not just going to church because you're supposed to. But follow the shepherd. Guys, he says that my sheep know my voice. And they follow me. If you are not following Jesus from the heart, what voice are you listening to? God knows everything. He knows his sheep, and he he knows that his sheep will follow him. His sheep know him. Now, this says one thing at the very end. Every secret thing will come into judgment, whether good or evil. Isn't that just terrifying? Everything you've ever done will be splayed out there for all the world to see, and we're all going to laugh at you. Actually, that's not what that means. This verse actually brings me joy and peace. You want to know why? Because I have done many secret evil things. You have too. Things that I'm embarrassed about, things that I don't want everyone to know about. But Jesus, in his love, he took all of those things into his body when he was murdered on the cross. And all of those things, nothing was hidden. All my secret things, God rummaged through my life and he pulled every single one of those things out and he shoved them down into Jesus. He let nothing be hidden. He didn't let any secret sin behind. He didn't leave it behind. He sought them all out and he dug them up and he shoved them in Jesus and then he killed his own son. To do away with our sins. All the secret ones. All the ones we're embarrassed about. And he turns back to us and he says, my beloved child, go free. This is how much I've loved you. All your sins are washed away. They're all removed out of you when you put your hope and faith in Jesus Christ. Enjoy your life. Your life now has meaning and value. And all that was sick and broken has been removed. And you are now saved and born again. That's why I love that verse. This is man's all. For God will bring every work into judgment, including every secret thing, good and evil. When did all of your sin get judged? Will there be a judgment of your sin? Yes. When did it happen? 2,000 years ago. It happened on the cross. Your sin was judged. And death was the decree. And death was carried out. And so you died 2,000 years ago. Well, then, what am I now? Paul says, That um, I'm trying to remember the verse. It's in my head. The life which I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me 
and gave himself for me. That's what we are free to do now. Will there be another judgment for us, guys? Yeah, there's going to be another judgment, but it's not a judgment of sin. Our judgment for sin took place 2,000 years ago on the cross, but there's going to be another judgment. Does anyone know what that judgment is going to be for? Pop quiz. Any ideas? Yeah, Jesus, you said the bima seat, okay? So that the word bima means rewards, rewards. So your life matters today and every day because there will be a judgment for Christians called the bema seat or the reward seat where Jesus will sit down and we will go through your life and you will be rewarded for every act of faith that you do, every act of love that you did. God says it matters, and you will be rewarded for it. Is it a judgment of what you did wrong? No. Everything we did wrong is just burned away in his eyes of fire, and we don't have to deal with that. We will go through our lives, and some of us, it will take a long time, and we will all be there, and we will go through each one of our lives. And, and some lives will take a long time because they did many wonderful things in faith to honor God and to glorify God. Others of us lived our whole lives knowing the Lord, but we lived them for self and did many other things that are just poof, gone. All your sin, poof, gone. And your rewards will be five minutes long. And, and we were like, huh, that was quick. Okay, next. Which one are we going to be? What are you going to be? How are you going to live your life? I promise you that that day of the Bema Seat will matter to you more than anything that has ever happened to you in this life. I promise for eternity that that day will be one that you will remember. So what do we do with these rewards? What do we do? You get crowns, it says. Jesus gives you crowns. The Father gives you crowns, rewards, and the Bible says that those who are in heaven stand up. We all stand up together, and we will take our crowns, and we will cast them at the feet of Jesus and glorify him and sing praises to his name. Because it was really him that did all this for us. Isn't that beautiful? So there is a sneak peek of coming attractions in your life what the future holds for you. If you're a believer, if you have called upon God and put your hope and trust in Jesus, have you done that? It's very important to know that you have. We are done, except we're going to sing a couple songs. Let what we've talked about sink in. We've got two songs? All right, cool. Homework for this week. You guys love when I give homework, don't you? Read Psalm 23. Spend some time in Psalm 23. Anyone have Psalm 23 memorized? It's super easy. Perry, do you want to stand up and share it with us?
Amen. That's wonderful. Thank you so much for obeying God to memorize that and for being bold enough to share it with us. He's a good shepherd, right? Amen. Father, I pray that you would help help us to trust you because life demands so much of our attention and is pretty scary sometimes. There are wolves everywhere. There are lions creeping around. Things that could truly destroy us. And I pray that you'd help us to stay close to you. I pray that we would see your word as life-giving sweetness. I pray that we'd see your commands as perfect in converting our soul. And Jesus, we know that we could never keep your commands, even one of them, in its fullness. And so we call upon you for grace and mercy. We accept your promise that you would give grace to the humble, and we want to become like little children and humble humble ourselves before you. Even right now, Lord, save us. Lord, deliver us, heal us, and bring us through this life of vanity. Keep us from just accepting vanity. I pray that we would instead seek out your glory. In Jesus' name, we rejoice and pray, amen.